Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. This is not your typical Christmas. I think we come to realize that right now. And so there's things that we've lost. There's things that are not going to be happening. Even for those of us gathered here, we're scattered around the building here a bit, and we've masked and everything else like that. So let's recognize there's something we've lost a bit in this season. And let's just take a moment. I want you to just take a moment to mourn that, whether you're here or scattered, just take your moment right now, wrap yourself in your little pity party, and let's have just a two-second moment of mourning. One, two, three, go. Okay. Some of you did that better than others, and some of you are clearly feeling this deeply. Um, there's things that, that are not the same. You know, we're not going to be gathering in the same way. Uh, there's certain traditions that maybe are lost, some that can be regained, or retained, rather. Um, for my family and I, for example, uh, one of the things that that we would be normally doing, uh, and usually fall on this day, is, is for years we've gone to see at Christmas time um, a Christmas carol, uh, Scrooge, over at Meadowbrook Theater. And now it's not always on Sunday for us. Sometimes it's another day, but whenever it is on Sunday, it's always great because I've usually been up since five or six in the morning, so by the time the second act rolls around, I'm just completely stone cold out. Um, but I hear it's a great play, okay? Um, so it's been part of our tradition that we're not going to be doing this year, but there's still a lot of things to celebrate in the midst of this pandemic. Number one, a lot of people, the majority of people, the vast majority are surviving it. That's a good thing. That's something that we should be thankful for. The election is over. Thank God. Okay? There's things to be thankful for. This year, almost finished. There's a lot of different issues that we can celebrate and be appreciative. I hope that in the midst of this, that even though this is a very different Christmas, that we would find something very special in the midst of the difference. The very fact that our traditions have been derailed, that perhaps something else holds our attention. The writer Luke, in the second chapter of his book, says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. We just concluded one in this country. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everybody knows Quirinius. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And then this portion. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. 
But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Then suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying what you guys just sang. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. There's this passage here, and I want to focus on one part of it. Um, The shepherds, they're out in these fields. And uh, when I was in Israel a couple of years ago, I was taken to the place outside Bethlehem that is the traditional place where the shepherd's field would be. You know, who knows? But it would have been a similar topography and similar in proximity probably to the town of Bethlehem. And, And it was stirring and interesting to me to just look over that field and to imagine being there at night in this rocky little place when suddenly an angel pops up and, and, and there's, there's a transformation of the night. Now, when angels show up, almost always, as we've said, they start with saying, don't be afraid. Well, there's a reason for that. We have a misunderstanding of angels. Angels are not us when we die. Heaven gets a new angel. Not a bit. Angels are completely different creatures. Angels are not, um, you know, feathery little things with, with little wings on their back or so like that. If you really get into the detail of what angels look like, they are terrifying beings. They are otherworldly. They are shocking. And so that's why whenever just one shows up, they are so terrifying that everyone's immediately shocked and afraid. And that's why they always have to start their comment with saying, hey, don't be afraid. It's okay. So this one pops out of the dark, terrifying in its visage. And so he says, don't be afraid. Now, I find this a little bit humorous because he talks to them about what's going on and, and shares the little message. Okay, so catch it. They're just quietly hanging out. Bang, angel shows up, terrifying. Don't be afraid. It's okay. It's okay. And then after he says just a few sentences, what is the next line? Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared. So don't be afraid. It's okay. Bang, there's suddenly 10,000 more of them. This is scary stuff. This is shocking Some of you have already fallen off of your uh, sofa at home. That's okay. You needed to. 10,000 of them suddenly. So it's like, don't be afraid. 10,000 suddenly. And they're just singing this song, uh, 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 you know, glory to God in the highest. And and, and just, this is incredible. 400 years of silence from the prophets. 400 years of darkness. And nothing's been said. Nothing's been spoken. And then suddenly after 400 years, it's torn open first by a baby's cry. And then by 100,000 angels suddenly just bursting over the hillside in song. I want to give you a little flavor, a slight flavor. of There's a clip I want to play for you. Andre Bocelli, he's been viewed as and worded as the the greatest singer of our time or so. And one other singer said, I think it was Celine Dion, said if, if God had a voice, it would sound like this. And so check this out for just a second, real quick.
I just want you to know the expectations that I have of you next time you sing this song. <laughs> now, imagine 100,000 Andre Bocellis popping up out of the dark, singing glory to God in the highest, gloria in excelsis Deo, which is what that means. I don't think we fully, we, we tame this down so much from the power of what it is. This song, uh, um, Angels We Have Heard on High, uh, translates into this Gloria in Excelsis Deo, is taken from a French carol that was literally known as the angels in our countryside. The angels in our countryside. It changes things from something that happened over there in a country far, far away. Uh, to, to take that differently, and I like that French statement that says, in our countryside. What, what if these angels popped up in our backyard? What if they showed up in the midst of our work scene? How would that rock and change and transform how we would think, how we would operate? I am increasingly disturbed, and I know people have thought that for many years of me, but, but I am particularly disturbed in, in recent years at the tangents that the church as a whole has gone off on. The things that we chase down, I don't mean to be judgmental on it, on this, but it just seems that, that so often the church is caught up with so many temporal, temporary things and has lost sight of the march of history. We talked about the promise of God two weeks ago and the prophecies that Christ fulfills. We talked about the conflict and the, the massive sweep of history and that struggle between the dragon and the, uh, uh, the babe and what God is bringing forth in this time that we celebrate as Christmas. And one of the things I question is in the midst of this, to what degree are we truly understanding these things and integrating these in our lives, letting these angelic voices and these scriptures and words shatter our reality and bring something new within us of an understanding? We get upset about the lockdowns and um, the guidelines and the rules, and I know it's, it's restrictive. I, I understand it. I, I'm not happy about these things either. I look forward to the day and uh, that we are... And it just occurred to me, I think, that, that on uh, the first service when we don't have to wear masks, I'm going to have all of us wear masks. I am. And, and staff, don't let me forget this, because I want to have us, we'll have masks, we'll pass them out. We're all going to wear masks. We're all going to wear masks. The reason why is this, because at, at some point in the service, I want us all to take them off at one time and just sink. To go from that moment of restriction to the freedom of giving our voices out. The difficulties of what we feel within governmental and all that's involved with this should give us a perspective this time that we've never had, perhaps, of Christmas. You see, at the time of Christ's birth, the Romans ruled, and they ruled with an iron hand. They dictated what you do, when you did it, and where you would go. You've heard the statement, and maybe because you're very biblically literate, you understand it's scripture that says that he went the extra mile. Because at one point in time, the scripture's talking to us and saying, look at, if, if they come and ask you to go one mile, take it two. That wasn't just a metaphor. Roman law in Israel 
provided and required that if any Roman soldier carrying his heavy gear was going along a road and would encounter a Jewish person, that they could require that Jewish person, regardless of their rank, regardless of their age, to carry their gear for one mile. They couldn't require it for two. That was against the law. But for one mile, think of that. You had to carry this guy's heavy gear. It didn't matter your status. Suddenly you're carrying this gear for this soldier that's there to protect you. But is in truth to control your life. And yet Jesus said, look at, don't let that dominate your thinking. If they say carry it one, carry it two. Make a decision that you'll actually go past that point. This was the world that Jesus was born into. This galling sense of oppression. Now in the midst of all this, they're being told by the Romans to go back to their ancestral towns. They have to uproot their life. doesn't matter if you have a pregnant wife go to this town, your ancestral town, wherever it is. And so people are now redistributing and scattered around the country. There's movement going on. Why? Because we're in charge. It's the law. We'll tell you what you're going to do. Uh, small sub-note here. We are probably in what I view the third quarter of this virus, the end of the third quarter. Not quite the end, but we're in the latter portion of the third quarter with a fourth quarter yet to play. But I got to say, you guys have played this well so far. Don't give that up yet. And maybe because of this, we can understand all the better the environment that Jesus was born into, the struggle that people had, and how they were dying for liberation from this great oppression that they felt. Let's go to a baseline scripture that reviews these last several weeks, Genesis 3.15, and I'll put enmity. God is speaking right now to the serpent who has not caused man to stumble, but has facilitated it. Man chose to. Adam and Eve chose to fall. But he facilitated. So he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, servant, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. At, 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 the, at the crucifixion of Christ, there's a striking of the heel. There's a non-mortal blow, if you will. In his resurrection, there's a crushing, though, of Satan's head. And so this is what this passage is talking about. And it's picked up in Romans chapter 16 and more personalized by the writer to say, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet and the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. He's saying, in other words, that, that there's been a cosmic crushing of the head of Satan and defeat of evil. But there's going to be an expression of that personally in your life. That there's certain areas in your life that, that God is going to come and he's going to crush that serpentine, satanic element that still influences you and is going to crush that. He's redeeming every part of who you are. The writer in Romans goes on in chapter 5, says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all people sinned everyone. And so death comes in this way through Adam and Eve's failure. It affects all of us. Well, that's not fair. No, but it is how reality works. When my grandfather made the decision to leave Czechoslovakia and to come as a young man to this country, he shaped my father's life and my life. That single decision decided things for several generations of time. And in the same way, Adam and Eve's decision has shaped us goes on in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, says, Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. We're still burdened under this. The genetic 
flow and stain is upon us. The writer goes on in the 15th verse and says, For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So he's contrasting now this first Adam with this second Adam. He goes on in the 17th verse, For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man? Jesus Christ, contrasting that again with Adam. He gets straight up in 1 Corinthians. For since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. This is a Christmas message that perhaps you've not heard before. But this is the root of what's happening here. This transformation, this restoration, this cosmic struggle between good and evil that, that bruises one but has the other crushed. Stay with me. This may seem a little of a sidetrack, but football has been one of my favorite things over the years. I finally came to the realization uh, a couple of years ago that I'm probably never going to again lay out in the end zone for that perfect catch and hit the ground and roll and pop up with the wind. I may catch it. I may hit the ground. I'm probably not going to get up again, though. <laughs> but one of my favorite teams has always been uh, the San Francisco 49ers. Those of us in Detroit always need another team to root for. And mine has been the 49ers. There's several reasons why. One of those reasons why is, is Joe Montana was their, their quarterback for a long time and one of the most brilliant quarterbacks ever played. I loved how he'd come from behind with nothing to spare and continue to pull the game out for the win. Amazing. Second reason why was Candlestick Park. How cool is it to have a football stadium on the edge of the ocean? Just the view and the breeze and the complexities that I thought that was cool. And the third part were the team uniform, which I just thought the colors were really nice. Joe Montana doesn't play for them anymore. He's gone. Candlestick Park has been shut down, and now they've moved into the interior of the, of the state. But the uniforms are still cool. But the name 49ers, those relate to a group of people that showed up in California in 1849 pursuing gold. It was a flood of men that suddenly came to the town, or to the state, rather. And in coming to the state, um, they mostly left women behind. In fact, there was a higher percentage of, of men and a low ratio of women than practically any other time in our country's history in one location. Ladies, when you are not around, when you are not influencing us and shaping us, we are violent, nasty, mean people. Some of times we're that when you're around still, aren't we? And especially when there's no children involved. And so there was this one town that's written about that was a rough, violent mining town. And in this town, there was only one woman to the entire town, a woman named Cherokee Sal. And Cherokee Sal was not one of the more straightforward women. Her profession was clear. At one point in time, uh, she becomes pregnant. And as the child is being born, the men in the town are gathering the saloon, fighting and gambling. They're even betting on what the sex of the baby is going to be. This is a rough, violent, nasty group of people. 
somebody has to go in to help her out, and they draw lots and finally assign one guy to go in, and he'd had some family background. He goes in, and he's with her. At one point in time, in this rough, violent town, while they're betting and gambling and carousing, suddenly it says there was a moment of silence. It says that above the swaying and moaning of the pines, a swift rush of the river and the crackling of the fire rose a sharp, querulous cry, a cry unlike anything heard before in the camp. The pines stopped moaning, the river ceased to rush, and the fire to crackle. It seemed as if nature had stopped to listen too. And suddenly this baby is born. And it's a baby boy. The mother quickly expires. And the men are now faced with a responsibility that they've never had before, with a circumstance that they've never dealt with before. They stick the baby inside of a candle box and a few rags in place there. And as they look, they decide that doesn't look quite right. And so they send one of the guys 80 miles away to get a rosewood cradle. And he comes back with this rosewood cradle. And then they look at the rags, and that doesn't seem too right. And so they send another guy off to Sacramento to get some, some nice covers and lace and, and silk. And so they place that inside the cradle, and they set all that in place. And, and as they set him in the cradle, this beautiful rosewood with the lace and the, and, the, and the soft coverings, they suddenly look around at the floor, and they realize it's filthy. So they get down on their hands and knees, and they begin to clean the floor of the, of the hovel that this baby was in. As they begin to clean the floor and scrub it until it's finally clean, they suddenly realize as they finish that the walls are even worse and the, and the windows are horrible. And so they begin to wash and clean the walls and they send away for curtains to place upon the, the windows. After they finish with all that stuff, there's a realization that they can't keep up brawling and screaming and yelling at each other because the baby has to sleep. And if you do all that, the baby wakes up and that's a problem for everybody. So they give up their fighting and they give up their scrapping. They begin to pay more and more attention to this child, and they place this child at the beginning and the front of the mine so they can see the child as they're going in and out of the mine, and they realize it kind of looks scrappy and ugly around there too, so they begin to plant flowers around the mine in a nice little garden. And even as they're hailing the child or giving gifts to the child, they suddenly realize that their hands are filthy and dirty and grimy, and so suddenly there's a run on soap at the general store. The story goes on that in this little town that suddenly there's a change and a transformation that the baby changes the very nature of the town as they begin to watch their language and what they're saying and what they're doing. This child transforms the entire camp. There's one man particularly that I'm caught with in this story. And this one man particularly as the child is shortly after he's born, he, 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 he bends over to look kind of curious as to what's going on and the child turns over and reaches up and takes hold of his finger and holds his finger for just a moment of time. The guy's a little embarrassed and feels a little foolish and kind of slowly, carefully extracts himself. But as he walks amongst his fellows, he kind of holds the finger separate and, and throughout the next couple of refrains of the story, he's talking about how he wrestled my finger. He, he grabbed my finger. The, the darn little kitty, he caught me somehow. The child that transformed a town is a good illustration to me of a child that transforms the world, of this man who becomes a little embarrassed and is curious but is caught and touched and suddenly can't let go 
of what that touch means. Those are us of followers of Christ who curiously explore the things of this little baby but are captured by him and held. And there's something different about us that's begun there and then begins to flow through our arms and into our hearts and minds. And truly, if we understand it, transforms who we are and our understanding of the world that surrounds us. And suddenly what Isaiah said in his writing as a prophet works into our hearts in reality when he says, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there'll be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from the time forward even forever. Has the baby touched you? Have you had any curiosity at all? Has it changed how you think, how you speak, how you act, how you view the cleanliness of your own spirit and soul? Have you realized the redemption and the joy of what this season is to be about that no pandemic, no restrictions can ever take away from us? And there's something else as we've sung here earlier and as we think about angels singing wildly and crazily across the dark skies of Israel. Christianity, we are unique as a people. I, I, I don't know if you've heard and realized, but we, there's been restrictions for the first time ever upon singing. There are brothers and sisters of ours in other states that are forbidden to sing in their worship services right now. In other countries, there's been a forbidding of singing and, and I understand the reasons why, and that's why we mask and we're careful what we're, what we're doing here. Now, no other faith struggles over this, but we do. We are a singing faith. It's part of our worship. It's part of who we are. Islam has no great hymns. You're not going to hear atheist singing a particular uplifting song. It's the same for every other belief. But Christianity alone is unique in that it's part of our worship in a way unlike any other major faith on earth. In the midst of, of the press to hear silver bells only going through our mind at this season or to be caught up with the drama of Rudolph and her nose, we need to remember that the first song, the first Christmas song ever sung was sung by angels over those shepherd's fields in Bethlehem. Glory be to God in the highest heaven on earth. Peace to those whom he's pleased. Notice it's peace to them who he's pleased. Or is it sometimes translated among those of goodwill? The Bible is right up front when it says that, that most people who heard the song, don't pay much attention to it. John notes in his gospel that the world knew, that the world knew Christ not. And he came to his home and to his own people, they received him not. Matthew talks about a star, but notes that only a few people followed it. And Luke tells us about this song of the angels, but there's no evidence that a great number of people paid attention to it. Glory to God in the highest. Peace to those who would embrace and hear that. 400 years of silence, 400 years of darkness broken by a baby's cry. 
And suddenly, a bursting forth of a million angels. And yes, notice my progression. I've gone from 10,000 to 100,000 to a million. There may have even been 10 million, shattering the sky. And that silence is broken by a song. John we Charles Wesley, rather. He was the uh, brother of John Wesley, the great speaker. Charles with, was the songwriter and musician for uh, the team. Charles, within a year, shortly after he was saved, within a year of his conversion and coming to Christ, wrote um, a song that was referred to and entitled originally as A Hymn for Christmas Day. It started out as saying, Hark how all the welkin rings. Not welcome, welkin. Welkin was an old English phrase for heavens. A good friend of his got a hold of it and changed some of the words. And instead of being called a hymn for Christmas Day or Hark all the welkin, we call it today Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And this song that Charles Wesley wrote, he wrote a number of verses to it, and then a friend of his, George Whitfield, got a hold of it and adjusted even more. And this song is based upon the scripture that we began with in Luke. This heavenly multitude of angels. And so the words that he originally wrote are the ones that we would sing, and they're like this, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. They're telling us about the birth. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners are reconciled. Joyful all you nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic million member host proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark, or listen, pay attention, catch this, the herald angels, the ones that are singing of this glory are proclaiming to the newborn king. Second verse in third verse is why they're singing. The first is telling us about the birth. The second and third are why. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh. The Godhead see. See God even in this flesh that he's veiled in, but it's God present Hail the incarnate deity, God the deity in the flesh incarnate, pleased as man with man to dwell. He's going to dwell with us. Jesus, our Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hark, listen up. The herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. The original song that was written, or the melody rather, was of a slow, thoughtful, contemplative, trying to, 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 to grasp and express the deep theology of these verses. Later, um, it was caught by another person who used Mendelssohn's tune and brought it into the upbeat song that we know today and how we express it, and it's beautiful. But originally, this song that was meant to capture a million angels in a moment of time and the deep theology of the scriptures that we've read here today would have sounded a little bit more along the line of this. 
but I'm going to ask you at least to join in this portion and stand and join us on these next two verses. verses read like this, continuing on. Come, desire of nations, come fix in us thy humble home. Rise, the woman's conquering seed, the one that's going to crush things. Bruise in us the serpent's head, that sin that lies within us. 
Now display thy saving power. Ruin nature, now restore. Now in mystic union join. Thine to ours and ours to thine. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Strike that out of us. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above. Reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee, the lost, regain. Thee, the life, the inner man. O to all thyself impart, formed in each believing heart. Whatever the holiday has ever meant to you before, the traditions, the surface, all the silver bells and Rudolph singing, the original song was a song of worship and praise with not 10,000, not 100,000, but over a million angels bursting into song. It was a child coming that transformed not just a camp, not just a community, but an entire world, and it was meant to change and transform us. Do you hear the song that came after 400 years of silence? Do you hear the baby's cry that changes our hearts and minds? Do we understand what it means to be reconciled and have sin stamped out in us and the image of God worked in us? George Whitfield, the friend of Charles, he liked the three verses, but he liked aspects of the fourth and fifth, and so he combined those into a fourth verse that I sang as a kid that comes like this. Come, desire of nations, come. This can be a prayer today. Fix in us thy heavenly home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. But then he jumped to Adam's likeness, now we face Stamp thy image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. And so I'm going to ask as we close this time here, us being a, a singing people of faith, that you join us in singing this verse as we close this time out. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering sea. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now we face. Stamp thine image in. Born 
try to compete with. You are people who have been redeemed. You are people that nothing can restrict. Nothing can stop that song that broke out of the darkness centuries past. Traditions may have changed right now. Yes, it's a different Christmas. Isn't it possible, though, that maybe our perceptions being a little sharper that maybe this is the best Christmas that we'll ever have. It's possible. Father, I pray right now for your church universal, for our brothers and sisters that struggle in China, for others in other countries under oppression. Father, we are grateful for what we have. And I pray, Lord, that in this season of time, as the silver bells ring and people are preoccupied with Rudolph, that there would be a gloria in excelsis deo that would echo within our hearts, that would overcome the darkness and the deathly silence of this time, that your church would sing forth. Let us hear, God, your voice, and let us respond to that in this time, and let this be the best Christmas ever. In Jesus' name, I pray this for your church. And the church said, good response. Merry Christmas to you all.